Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. Happy New Year, and welcome to the third season of Clock Talk. I have the incredible honor to speak to you today as the new president of the Clock Board of Directors. And I feel excited to take on this leadership commitment behind some industry pioneers and clock president predecessors like Mike Haven and Mary O'Carroll. Also, I feel so excited to help clock iterate on our collective mission, which is to give you, the in-house legal ops professional, all the community, content, and knowledge you need to transform the business of law. This year on Clock Talk, we're going to mix things up a bit. My fellow Clock board members will be joining us as guest hosts, where they will each lead a deep dive into the Clock Core 12. We will also be introducing our Clock voice and brand ambassadors onto the podcast, like today's guest, Louis Bretz. Louis and I caught up last year in New York City to discuss things like the future of legal ops, our shared skepticism around generative AI, the importance of psychology, and so much more. Hope you enjoy the episode. Louis Bretz, welcome to Clock Talk with me today. You're joining me in the Netflix New York offices. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. We've been exchanging emails and texts for a while that you should come on. We have, and I got to see you last week, and that was very exciting. That was a fun first meeting for us yeah. at the New York Clock Talk Live. So you just got back from Chicago, you said. I did. We were doing some psych work out yeah, there or so all of the above? Like- all of the above. Pretty much a lot of our team is still remote. So we got some of our team together. So that yeah. was good. We hosted an event for kind of a legal ops meetup. So that was fun. Yeah. So, so you guys fun- hosted Uncensored's yes, chapter meeting. We did. Amazing. Yes. Did you have a good turnout? We had a really good turnout. It was a really nice crowd. It was yeah. nice and intimate. We had this kind of underground wine cave vibe. This big table in the middle, like we should have been doing a seance or something yes. like that. It was good. Did you do a seance? We did not do a seance. Oh. And I promised I was asked if I wanted to do some kind of workshop. And I promised everyone I wouldn't do that. So we just had drinks. Let me ask you, how many times in the community gathering was generative AI mentioned? And did you turn it into a drinking game? By the time I got through Clockamia and then the Financial Times Summit in London to follow, I was like, we should have made this a drinking game. And then at the end of the week, all just sloshed on about it. So we didn't talk about it too much. I think I am an AI cynic. I think I've always been an AI cynic, but that's my unpopular opinion at the moment. And to be clear, it's not that I have a problem with AI in general. I'm cynical about what AI means in where are we today, like September 2023. What is different about this moment in time to where we are? And I know probably in three years time or something, I'll be on the stage or we'll do this again. And you'll play me this clip of me saying AI is terrible. And I'll be saying, no, now it's the best thing in the world. I I false because I said some stuff in London. (laughs) Like, I don't think enterprise legal, which is where you and I make our livings, I don't think that they are going to be thwarted forward too many standard deviations. I think the first standard deviation starts in five years, three to five years from now. I don't think that enterprise legal has its house fully in order to make 
everything gen AI-able? I think two things, right? I think the first thing is if we really think about what is like the first AI use case in legal, I think back to, well, I don't know, is it spell check? Is that AI in legal? Like, why Clippy. is that not? What's his name? Clippy. Clippy. Yeah, Clippy. Why is Clippy not a great example of AI in legal? And yeah. then I think to myself, if I reflect on the conversations I most commonly have outside of clock and FT and legal ops meetups, it's like, what should we do and what's important and what matters and how do we yeah. find our contracts in paper, let alone how do we kind of, and I yeah. just, yeah. I survey every time I'm in front of a group, a community group or an audience, like how many people are, if you're in-house or in a consulting yeah. role or law firm, how many people are really cranking with machine learning AI? And that's, I'm air quoting, easier one. How many people are cranking with that? And not a lot of hands go up. Yeah. It's less than a third of any group. Yeah. And I'm like, if you don't have everything machine learn tag, yeah. machine read learn tag, how are you going to tell an LLM what to do for psych client one, Acme Inc. or Netflix contract drafter? Yeah. How, who, what? And then I think there's the first question, isn't there? Which is what's the level of pre-work and stuff you've done about deciding yes. what's important to you and what matters and what are we going to design and what aren't we going to do? But then there's a question subsequent to that, which is, I think if I reflect on the last five years of our world, it's all been about, my big theme is, we've been about giving structure to unstructured stuff. And we've now got this moment in time where we kind of don't have to worry about that anymore. You can just chuck it well, all in the hopper. Like, yes and no. Okay. I think you're exactly right. That's the what's been going on. I yeah. don't think that all just gets structured and done. At least it's not been my experience in some of the larger enterprises yeah. I've been in. It takes a minute to get metadata defined or redefined, or there was a world of contracting five years before you got there, yeah. and it is not defined yeah. well for the CLM you're bringing in, and yeah. then all this cool yeah. stuff on top of it. And this has just been some of my experience. Maybe in smaller finite yeah. data pools. Yes, that is yeah. happening. And then people can start to leapfrog forward. And that's such a big requirement there, isn't it? That finite data pool. Does anyone have that? But I also think in this hypothetical world where you've either given structure to everything or you've put it all into this kind of big pool and you can now ask this corpus of data any question you want, like what is good and what is bad? Like what do you actually want to know? And so all this stuff around the right benchmarks and the right questions and what matters and what doesn't matter, you kind of, to me, you come back to this full circle point, which is unless you're really clear about what is important to yeah. your function and what's important to you personally, everything else you build on top of it is bit on sand because you haven't got real clarity. Over yeah. What and to get a group of legal folks, your senior attorneys, yeah. leaders, your legal professional functions, to get them to declare all of that yeah. is work. It's prep work. Is everyone even doing that? Are ops functions the ones who should be doing that yeah. or holding them to task to do that? That's real work. I don't know. I'm with you on skepticism and reluctance. It is not my job to tell some of the lawyers, don't do your next contracts. Harmonize it instead with me and my team or yeah. build the playbook. That's not my sole decision. This is a legal function and they're in a rush. And don't get me wrong, it's cool, right? There is some really cool stuff being done. It's really exciting to see. And if I think about my journey into this world, I started because people showed me stuff and you saw stuff and yeah. I was like, this is like magic. And so there's some cool stuff being done, yeah. but I think there's a way to go before we see that standard deviation. Lewis, in London, I may or may not have gotten up in front of a room of 100 people at the Financial Times Summit with a guitar mm -hmm. at the end of the day yeah. to warm up 
McKinsey's chief legal officer, who was going to get up there with a guitar at the end of the day. Pierre Gettin believes in passion, being yourself at work, the creative streak and expression. The guy is a musician through and through that okay. I think tripped and fell into law and CLO ship. And when I was hanging out with him, I felt like I was hanging out with a bandmate. I love the fact that like DJ Diesel is not the only kind yeah. of big, we've got our own music. Yeah, there's a music thing yeah. happening. And so I'm like, what song are you going to do? And he's, I don't know, a Dylan or a Robert Johnson. I'm like, would you like a warm up? You want me to get up there and warm him up for you and then intro you? Mm -hmm. He's like, I'd love that. So I get up there with the guitar that FT just ran out and bought us, <laughs> okay, with a DI box. And... I was like playing some chords. I pulled together TLC Waterfalls. It's like one of the songs in my stable. Always goes over well with the crowd, nice. especially women. They'll just do that chorus. And I was vamping at the top, warming up the room. A guitar is coming. Lyrics are coming. Singing is coming. Pierre's going to sing Robert Johnson. So I start cracking jokes after I introduce myself. And then maybe I started venting, but in a funny way, but at them. I was like, I don't know why you're all talking about Gen AI exclusively. You're all only doing email still. Email is as far as you've got. Yeah. You will not see this at your fingertips extensively in the enterprise work. I don't think for a few years. We're going to see it in productivity, Microsoft and G Suite in months. Write an email that gets a research system, schedule the thing that like the, that's easy stuff. Yeah. It's tactical and fixed. So I was like, I don't know what you're doing. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. And I called out some of those rivers and lakes. I'm like, how about we talk about risk again yeah. and ethics and my favorite contracts. And it was so weird and fun. I had fun. I vented because I couldn't believe how much Gen AI was spoken during the weeks. And yeah. I'm like, at clock, I was like, are we done talking about CLM? Did we crack that nut? <laughs> it's done. But I think that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Where are the steps? Like, what is the difference between, we see iteration, and so you'll see like better and better spell check for want of better argument, better yeah. and better predict. Sure, you'll see that infused into lots of things that we do. Yeah. But then I think it is interesting to reflect on where do the big step changes come? I was listening to Steve Harmon talking with you about Outlook and about email. And I think you were talking about going from replicating a library card system yeah. to saying, well, actually, we can search for stuff now and we yeah. can do that. And that, with the benefit of hindsight, appears to us as a step change. We recognize that that was a move forward. I think the interesting question is, what will be the equivalent of that step change? Because it will come. I don't see it just yet. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing. To it will about. come. And I think it's about finite pools of data yeah. to your earlier yeah. point and the importance of those getting yeah. to finite. My fitness app just turned on their in beta, their yeah. generative AI chat. And I've been in it saying, oh, cool. Today, I said, give me an average of my slow wave sleep over the last two months, six yeah. months, and since we started on this app, just to see, because I'm thinking a lot about sleep and understanding all this I'm on a neuroscience bender that this podcast can easily go into forevermore. So go with me on this. But finite data, my data of the last four years, and then the Internet's worth of research. But you see, I think this is exactly my case. Because I did the same as you. Right? I bought Sleep Tracker okay. and I got all this great data. Uh -huh. And I'd wake up every morning and it would tell me, like, you didn't sleep very well last night. Or you didn't get enough deep sleep. And I'd wake up and I'd be like, yeah, I kind of knew that. Kind of knew that because I felt a bit tired. And it was really nice to have it proven to me in a quantitative way. But I couldn't do anything about it. 
I still have this problem, which you is like... You don't think you can do anything about deep sleep? Well, you can do stuff, but it, it wasn't an easy thing to change. It's behavioral. It's, it's behavioral. Hardest. And so it wasn't like actually getting the data. The data yeah. telling me that I was tired wasn't particularly helpful because I already knew what I yeah. needed to do without the underlying data. And all that happened is I found myself lying awake thinking, oh, I wonder what my data is going to say about yeah. this in the morning. It's actually a nice little example of, well, adding more data and layering that quantitative analysis on top of it doesn't really add anything to the underlying problem. It's telling you with a megaphone the problem. And I actually really appreciate that some people just are not cut out to track it and Mm. wear a tracker or let the data appear every day Mm. that they can become digitally overwhelmed Mm. by it. I have a friend who can't wear any tracker. It just creates an anxious vibration in her. She's like, I feel like I'm losing every day and never doing enough because you're right. It points you to a place of, well, you have to behaviorally change to get a better score. And that's not good for everyone. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to have a target that is achievable and motivates people in that way? Or do you want to have a stretch target that actually is a thousand, but everyone's happy if you hit 700 because you came close. And it's like, there's some interesting psychological Deep psychology with sales and sales targets. I can't even imagine being in that kind of a role. Not that I couldn't do it or I don't think it's good work. It's another psychology of work. But then shouldn't we all have KPIs? We should all measure whether we're achieving or not achieving. And I mean, I'm basically selling and internally and have KPIs. Yes. And there's a number over everyone's head. I mean, we're all in business. It looks different when you're in an enterprise role than when you're setting actual targets. That's true. But I think fitness numbers are great. I'm athlete and savage Mm. competitor. I think I'm a behavioral scientist. I think I'm a musician first and behavioral scientist second who somehow landed in this legal ops thing. And I'm like, we're having fun. This is the grand psych experiment. And now like music is just coming out in every corner of the work. And now you all know I'm like totally on stages all the time playing music and in studios. And then some people get anxious with fitness numbers. I get anxious with sales numbers and you're like, it's fine. This is our business. It's fine to each their own, I guess. It's interesting, but it's all psychology. I sometimes think about what would I do if I wasn't doing Uh, that. What would you do? I'm always curious. Or what did you do before you tripped and fell into the law, the land of law? So I really wanted to be a rock and roll tour manager. They're born. Tour managers are born, not made. So I worked in the music industry. I worked at a lot of festivals in the UK. And I kind of reached this thing where I was like, "Hmm, I'm not seeing any happy and fulfilled 40-year-old tour managers. That's not people who I'm meeting. They look road-worn too. And like they're in all black. I met a lot of 30-year-old tour managers that looked like they were 40. I kind of thought, "Mm, I don't know whether this is for me. And so then I didn't really know what else to do. So I went to law school and I became a trial attorney. I was a barrister in the UK. And I kind of had this epiphany. I was like, hey, there were two things that I did. I was in a trial and it was all about a start date wasn't entered into a contract and I won, but it took a lot of time and a lot of energy. And I was like, hey, this does not feel like a good use of anyone's time and money. And there was another, which doesn't work for a government department and doing a repetitive kind of contract type. And again, I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And I kind of came home to my wife one day and said, this does not feel like a good use of anyone else's money, a good use of my time, or a good use of what I had gone to law school to do. And so I looked for something else. And I met Alistair, who at the time had a tiny little company. And together we grew that to Psych and through acquisition and carried on with that. And so that's my story. But I come back to the psychology aspect of it. I talk a lot to our team about, we're not saving lives, but actually the impacts we can have when we do this stuff right 
is the difference between people working all night on something they don't find fulfilling yeah. or getting to go home and say, I've solved this problem and I can sleep easy and yeah. I feel like I've done interesting part of my job, whatever that is. That is a compelling thing to do. And I enjoy that when we have those I love days. that you found that and connect it for you and your team. That's hashtag leadership. It's important for us to be looking beyond just the work and yeah. connecting to that and I too, I get really excited to make things better. I like making environments I'm in better than how I found yeah. them. And I love revolutionizing the work. I care less about the attorneys. Sorry, guys, if your attorneys <laughs> and listening, but I say this a lot. I think so much of our work impacts the legal professionals realm, hardcore, heavy duty. It can take their job and automate a portion of it. And maybe they can handle more scale, more volume, become the manager of coach, another junior professional or what have you. And that's where I see a lot of my solutions hit. It's those like wrangling workflows and trying to get them up into data driven application. Totally. And I think what's interesting is when you get it right, it should be about getting people to do the bit of the work that is fun and enjoyable and yeah. where they're delivering maximal value. And so yeah. much of like all of the stuff in our world has grown up for various historic reasons and because no one's really thought about it, that there are people who are really smart and sometimes really well paid, both legal professionals and not legal professionals, doing work which is not fulfilling and not well aligned to their value. And yeah. I think maybe that's the step change. Maybe that's the revolution that's coming more, which is a really hard introspection on what is the role of an attorney? What's the role of a contract manager? What's the role of a human in our world? Yeah, I think that's a really exciting. I think it's exciting. And yeah. the lines get to shift around, yeah. the shape gets to shift around those. We showed some attorneys a different way, a new way of loading in forms, yeah. building the playbook next to it and generating first drafts from that kind of deal playbook yeah. precedent. And we saw the light bulb go off in one of the attorney's heads and go, whoa, I can now shift first like draft one to draft one and a half. Yeah to all the next level of talent, yep. either junior attorneys or contract managers looking to level up and learn the negotiation. Like attorneys get asked that all the time by paralegals yep. and contract managers. Like I want to learn how to negotiate and yep. get my feet wet. And at Cisco, they had a career track for that contract negotiators. They don't have that everywhere or sometimes they don't have the time to teach them. But when this attorney saw how the tech could serve it up, everything yep. she teaches us to put into the tech yep. as playbook, we just democratize the work for the next rung yep. of talent. That's cool. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that democratization point, that opening up and saying, hey, this no longer needs to be this closed little knowledge yeah. thing. That's exciting. That's cool. It's exciting. And I wish they'd stop asking, when's this going to take my job? Because it's such a finite way of thinking, like when's AI or gen yeah. AI or any kind of tech going to take my job? And I'm like, you're not a switchboard operator. You're an attorney. Yeah. And you write the code for business to be done in the world. And yeah. so much is not written or precedented. Yeah. And we come back to that psychology point, which is yeah. we think about what drives change in organizations yeah. and how do you get adoption? How do you bring people on the journey with you? Yeah. And underpinning all of that stuff is these fundamental, like, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for my job? And so actually, unless you confront those issues, unless we think about them carefully, yeah. it's hard to drive effective change and, and hard to kind it's of bring hard. people on that journey. And yeah. my answer this week after an exhausting week in London, overhearing Gen AI... <laughs> And laughing how everyone's like hooked on email. 
someone said this week, well, they're asking, when's it going to impact their job? I'm like, just tell them it's not. That's what I said. I'm like, <laughs> just tell them this week it's not. And they're like, well, maybe we should explore the gen AI tool that's now inside the company. I'm like, we don't have time. Still trying to figure out machine learning. When this goes out, I'm going to get emails from people that think you're wrong. This is the most exciting thing. And it's it's exciting. Change so. I don't negate that it's a step change in technology and data. I don't mm. negate it. But when will it be yeah. at the fingertips yeah. of the enterprise yeah. masses? Yeah. It's going to be a minute. Yeah. And it's going to hit the enterprise masses. Legal's at the end of that spectrum yeah. later. Even though we're language people, legal yeah. people are language people, that doesn't mean what I have learned in the respect for the language, the contracting and everything. Like there's a difference between while and thou. Yeah, and, yeah. It's not my business to get in the way of that and fight. It's very nuanced in a lot of places. Well, and I think the real question is, if your vision, if your end point of all of this is, when is the robot lawyer coming? When are we all going to be automated out of our jobs? Like that end state, we will still be talking about that point 20, 30, 50, 100 years. Yeah. And, and did a talk about it a while ago where there's a picture of people all on their cell phones in a subway carriage. And, you know, people are saying like, oh, everyone's on their phones all the time. And then you look back through history, you can see people talking about how people were reading their newspapers on yeah. the subway all the time. And in the future, people will be talking about how we've got, all got our, I don't know, VR goggles on and people aren't socializing anymore. And these are this kind of common refrain about how is technology going to take my job? When are we going to be automated out of a role? I think it's always much longer than you think it is. The role changes, what matters changes. And on the whole, people end up doing things that I think are more interesting, more valuable. Yeah. And, and I think it's a one-sided question that is just like the pessimistic or fear-based finite look. It's like, when is this going to put me out of a job? I'm like, it's going to add 30 new types of jobs. I mean, there is a full-time job career for YouTube thumbnail <laughs> creators. Yeah. And yeah. the thumbnail is one of the most important components yeah. to a successful YouTube video. It goes title, then thumbnail, and then that video better be a great idea executed well. But if it's a great idea executed well with a bad thumbnail and title, it might not pull them in. This Absolutely. is a new job that yeah. didn't exist 10 years ago that yeah. young folks are crushing the game in. Any folks could go in. I yeah. just think there's 25 more jobs to come. I think my job is something that obviously didn't exist 20 years ago in this way. And we're still defining it. So I don't know. I think we should match some of the pessimism with, hey, jobs are coming that we don't even know. There is so much we don't even know. Don't make me go galaxy brain. And here's a question. Will the role of legal ops, let's call it legal ops manager, whatever you want to call it, will that exist in 20 years time? 10 no, years time? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it'll shift. Why not? I think at some point, the next generations or cadres of general counsel CLO they're going to know how to do some of this. They might need people like me. Maybe it'll be there, but it's going to be shaped differently. We won't need as many community groups to commiserate <laughs> as a large community. It won't be as difficult. And you might not need someone like me. I'm good for difficult. That's how I see my unique value add to this is I'm good at adversity. I'm good in chaos. I have a formula for going against and then galvanizing yeah. to bring together. And I think that's why this role, some people just like flatline on it because yeah. it is hard. The boulder we're pushing up the hill. So maybe it won't be as much of an uphill. I think it will come stock. I feel like being a great GC will just mean being good at ops as well. Like it won't just be yeah. about running a great legal department and doing gold-plated legal advice. 
Not that in reality any GC just does that, but actually I think the ops side will be more integrated. I think contracting will kind of separate out a little bit more, so we'll see some more contracting ops. And I think actually we'll see some more legal ops norms. You're doing this day to day, right? So you will know, but I feel like there are lots of people blazing a trail in their organizations for the first time. At some point, pioneering has to end. Yeah. If I think about what does the scorecard look like for a sales department at the moment, there are probably some pretty consistent KPIs that we would look at, you know, around cycle time and kind of close rates. You could probably draw a scorecard and it would be pretty consistent organization to organization. Same thing if you think about financial metrics and liquidity ratios. And I don't think we have that yet for legal, but we'll get there. And so the role of the kind of trailblazing legal ops person, I feel like will probably diminish a little bit. Uh, and it'll yeah. be more about kind of surfacing the data and the implementation and the, the iteration. There's another theory that you just sparked. We might get more specialized. And instead of me as one, you might have three. You might yeah. have an ops org design chief of staff yeah. person. You might have tech ops running severe contracting ops function within yeah. a tech ops function that has a undertone of enterprise IT in it. Yeah. You might have financial ops. I think one of the reasons why we all struggle with aspects of the role is we all take on too much and it becomes jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that everyone is that good at anything. I'm really a cynic. I think I'm good at two things, maybe three in this life. And then I just like kind of reinforce that and expound on that. Yeah. Being focused on what you're good at and being focused yeah. on what really matters is the hardest thing because yeah. you inevitably, if you do a good job, I don't think people throw more and more stuff yeah. at you until you break. And actually the hardest thing to say is no, and I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to prioritize this. If I look around the people that I've seen be successful around me, it's the people that are able to say, hey, that's a fascinating idea, which I would love to do in a different life. But today I'm about delivering this thing. And that's the people that can really do that effectively. I really envy because I think that's one of the hardest skills. It's hard. And to deliver that thing, the way I've delivered some things with my amazing team is we're inventing some of this as we go because the product off the shelf is not going to fit in the business. And we have to make something work to help that efficiency in the department, to hit KPIs, to help the org be able to org design better with some automation in place. So we have to invent. And I don't know how to do that and finance outside council management and be a chief of staff. I would melt. I would melt. And I think that we could specialize more. And I think the clock wheel is an amazing piece of IP with all those cores, but it doesn't mean we all do all 12 things. Is the reason that you need to create stuff, is that a function of a lack of technology on the market capable of delivering what you think ought to be baseline functionality? Or is it there are particular requirements that you in your world, like the Jen McCarran world, people aren't delivering on? Or is it organizationally where you've worked is so unique and special? That's quite an interesting thing to think about. To what extent, what's the gap there? It's probably more than half the cultures you're in. I've been in the cultural norms, what they're used to seeing and not seeing. And then when a product comes in, they just start in a demo or you are rolling something out. They just start complaining. Like it doesn't do this and the button's not there. And Some of these people haven't been held to a high degree of innovation accountability in their roles. Like 
can't blame a paralegal yeah. for not rising to every challenge, but I'm like, I can't move a button on a third party product. <laughs> like I need you to move your behavior, retrain your brain. So a lot of it's culture, a lot of it's psychology. And then look, there is some China shop, like the expression bull in a China shop. There's some preciousness in Fang environment because of this Silicon Valley origin story, the engineers are yeah. the gods that can build anything. And they built a lot yeah. and they have revolutionized our lives. Look how we're working right now and recording in this room. And it's so cool. So sometimes when you're in those environments, well, we can just build it better. Right. Yeah. And those were early combos I had at Netflix where I was like, no, or you can build it better, but to build that solution that already exists on the third party market, yeah. you're going to spend, I don't know, I'm just making up numbers, yeah. finger to the wind, $40 million yeah. in really amazing engineer product and designers. Yeah. You need them in California or all together where we're based. And it's going to take five years. I can pull this in off the shelf. And okay, we can get 20% of what we want onto the vendor's roadmap and hope and pray through partnership that yeah. they deliver it. So it's like culture, it's origin of the company build by and the appetite for that. And I saw a real change even over the time where now they're like, like a Netflix is not as big as a Google, it's not as big as a meta. Yeah. And so they got a bigger appetite for buy over build. I guess that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? If you're part of an organization where the culture is, we do not accept the status quo. We go out and we change yeah. it. If you're working in an innovation role, that's a really interesting dynamic to have to work with, I suppose. Yeah, I and guess, the yeah. business model of a company like that and Spotify is unprecedented. Yeah. Streaming yeah. is so new. Yeah. They have to build a bunch of stuff internally that is proprietary to them. These are unprecedented. Yeah. Rights management solutions, in my opinion, off the shelf would never fit at Spotify. And there was someone there trying to bring in a rights yeah. management solution. And I was like, please, God, no, don't. Don't bring in the third party and then don't ask me to build yeah. it first party yet. Let me solve this contract deals desk with the team <laughs> first, which we did. And then I exited before rights came in. And when I got to Netflix, I was like, where's the right solution? And they're like, we built it. It's over there. I'm yeah. like, thank goodness. Yeah. And if I think about our fan clients, that is a story which I think is you, you don't see that in our FinSurf clients. That's not the challenge in those yeah. organizations. I find it interesting, again, going back to this point about what motivates people and what freaks people out. It's easy to be dismissive around, yeah. well, I've had some conversations about fonts, right? So we can't possibly implement this platform because we have to use our house font for the logo or whatever. And it's easy to be dismissive about that requirement. Are you going to limit your choice of platform because it can support this weird esoteric font that you use? Yeah. But then I can see the argument, which is that the familiarity, that people seeing something to them that is familiar, that matches all yeah. the other systems they use is important and helps drive adoption. And I find that an interesting thing, discussion that we have a lot internally about sometimes the big things are what drives change forward, but sometimes the little things can be really important. Oh God, I think the little things yeah. are more important to have your house in order, yeah. have a great foundation of the small mediums. And then look, we all have to go for those big impact, yeah. big bang kind of solutions. Oh, and then we all live and die in those implementations forever. But I got a really cool email from someone in accounting recently. 
when she changed her frame of reference or her perspective of where she stood and looked at the solution we gave them from not going to save everything in the world and all. But when I looked at it for the three to five things, the small things it did so concretely, so automatically, quickly served that data up to them so they can account more quickly and spend less time turning pages as numbers people. She's like, then it's revolutionary when I can change my perspective. And I was like, wow. And then I'm like, once again, the finance and accounting people sometimes are the biggest fans of legal ops. They're the first fans. They're the early fans. And then uh, legal comes around later. And that's real change. I think that's what's so exciting about when you get that kind of response, right? Which is that you have made my day a little bit shorter. And that's a cool thing, right? It's really really cool. cool. Like, amazing paid accountants sitting in LA and in Los Gatos turning pages on a document in 2023. We're better than that. And let's get you there quicker and get you out of here quicker. Yeah, absolutely. This is so fun. What's on your Kindle? What are you reading? What am I reading? I'm reading a book about the chip war, about the beginnings of Silicon Valley and about the fact that there is one semiconductor manufacturer in Taiwan that like the whole world has a dependency on it. And so that is what I'm reading about. It's interesting. I haven't read that book, but I've heard of it. Yeah. It's like global supply chains, interdependencies. It's really interesting. That's fun. I have that. And then I have some like trash. John Grisham, probably. Trash John Grisham. I think AI is writing his books. (laughs) I think you're right about that. That's a fixed data pool. You can learn that. I think he has a factory of writers, Little Grisham. You got to send me that book, Rec. The Foundings of Silicon Valley and Chips is really fascinating. That goes back to the 60s and 1970s. It does. And the counterculture. That's what what I find so interesting. Counterculture, how it all started in this little landmass outside of San Francisco. And it's the reason I live out there right now, because this work that I do, I believe started out there the way I do it. I know that there were like Jeff Isaacs was in New York at Goldman and a bunch of the guys and gals at the banks were getting together. I know they were doing it too and probably super advanced on the finance portion, but the California counterculture way is where all this started. And so it's fun out there. It's a bit renegade. You still feel that. hundred percent you feel it. And I feel it like, as you know, I'm a New Yorker through and through, but my brain and creativity and counterculture-ness wants to be in California. And I learned that working at Cisco while sitting in New York and lived a bit of a fractured existence. (laughs) So to be out there and sometimes go in the room with really creative tech people out there and we just invent it, it's still happening, that ethos. So how fun. Thanks for coming on Clock Talk and hanging with me in New York. Been a pleasure, Jen. Thanks so much. Till the next time. Thank you, Lewis, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your thoughts. Catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time.